Hello and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast, an ongoing conversation about public policy, governance, and global issues. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and joining us today is Special Olympics Chairman and CEO, Tim Shriver. Tim was recently named a Fisher Family Fellow by the Belfer Center's Future of Diplomacy Project. Thanks for being here, Tim. Thanks for having me. So tell me a little bit about the Special Olympics mission. The Special Olympics mission is very simple. Our goal is to find people who have special needs, intellectual disabilities all over the world and give them the chance to train and compete in sports, to do that in an environment that celebrates their accomplishment uh, as Olympic, and to showcase those skills that emerge through sport and the relationships that are empowered by sport as powerful vehicles for changing attitudes that are otherwise quite stigmatizing and humiliating for this population and replace those negative values uh, and negative attitudes uh, with attitudes about acceptance and and communities of welcome that celebrate the gifts of every citizen. So you use that word Olympic, and that means a lot to people all around the world. What does it mean in particular to your organization? Well, I think one of the most audacious things, this movement was founded by my mother in 1968, and probably among her most audacious uh, moves was to attach the word Olympic to the population of people with intellectual disabilities, especially in 1968, when most of them were living in institutions, when the world had not noticed or seen them, when the common and prevalent attitudes would have been uh, about a child with an intellectual disability, I'm sorry, and that's a hopeless case, um, and worse. In that setting, uh, she chose the word Olympic. Um, Olympic typically means elite, the best. Um, uh, the aspirational goals of the human kind of person to be higher and faster and stronger in her vision and in the vision of our athletes and families around the world today, Olympic is a quality of the heart, of the spirit. It is how hard you try to get higher. It is how hard you work to become faster. It is how much uh, grit you muster to become stronger. So we celebrate the gifts of people that come from within. And we believe that in an uncanny and perhaps surprising way, those gifts strike the average human being as even more Olympic, if it's possible to say so, even more Olympic than the gifts of those who win in the other Olympics. Um, It's it's an amazing experience to watch a Special Olympics athlete um, who has struggled all his or her life uh, run a 400. Uh, and come in second or third with everything God gave them, with every ounce of energy and grit and courage and determination, and to see their mother or father be proud of them, and to see a community celebrate their achievement, and to know that at some level you have just seen human greatness. It's quite stunning. So why sports? I mean, what's the pet? That's a really great question. I think uh, the only person who could really answer that is the people who created the movement, not me. I would never have chosen sport. I would have built a school or run a public relations campaign or written a curriculum or something like that to teach people that uh, disability and intellectual difference isn't, isn't, uh, shouldn't be seen as as a source of humiliation or stigma. My mother and others chose sport. I think they knew, understood a, a couple of things. First of all, sport was easy and everybody loved to do it at some level. We all know what it means to play. I think, secondly, they knew and understood that sport was something you did with everything you had. It wasn't just your head. It wasn't just your spirit. It wasn't just your body. It was everything. And so it gave them a chance to showcase a human person sort of fully alive, if you will, body, mind, spirit, all acting together. And for a population that had been seen to be so broken, so wounded, so uh, flawed, 
sport became almost the way to overturn that sense of flaw and to reveal a whole fully alive human being. Now, why it works as well as it does is still a source of um, mystery and curiosity for me and many others. But the, the truth of the matter is that people all over the world, volunteers who don't get paid, uh, who have no incentive, who have no uh, uh, upward mobility as a function of being involved in Special Olympics. These people come to their local community-based Special Olympics programs 50,000 times a year. They come and they line the field and they turn on the lights in the gym and, and they set up the, uh, uh, the cones uh, to run these races for no reason other than the fact that they find in these races and in these sports experiences uh, moments of personal transformation and fulfillment. Um, why it works is, is as I say, still uh, still something I'm learning. So it seems as though, uh, I mean, you can see on the faces of any of the participants, any of the athletes, the real short-term uh, gain that they get from it. Um, but it seems that as an organization, the Special Olympics uh, is both trying to achieve that, but also through that, uh, achieve greater change in the culture of, you know, the various uh, yeah. countries it's active in. Is that? Well, we, we believe that the primary obstacle facing people with intellectual disabilities is the stigma and humiliation that is carried by cultural norms that stigmatize and, and humiliate them. Um, and so our goal is to play so that those norms can be changed. Uh, there's no uh, mincing words here. Our goal is to use the power of sport in and of itself to promote health and nutrition and physical activity and all the gifts that the body and motion and an exertion bring to any one of us, but also to use that power to send a signal to the world that these are human beings with gifts and capabilities, just like everybody else, that deserve full rights, full dignity, full inclusion, uh, full life. Um, so we will continue to try to organize great soccer matches and track and field competitions and ski races and hockey games and so on. But every time we do, every single game is designed to be a teachable moment when the uh, dignity of the human person in action is revealed as something that society and culture and politics ought to take uh, and keep alive every day. So. Uh the Special Olympics started in 1968 on Soldiers Field in Chicago. Um, on that day, it was a thousand participants. Today, you count over four million athletes involved from 180 countries. I mean, what's the key to that growth? How has that happened? I think the key is that we trust people to be agents of change. We don't tell people uh, uh, to come to us for to learn. We don't tell people what they need to do in their communities to uh, to affect change. We don't bring in experts that uh, have all the answers. Uh, we believe uh, that uh, active citizens, committed volunteers, are amongst the world's most powerful vehicles for change. And so we invest significantly in giving our business model away to citizens who want to take it. We don't try to control them in the way most organizations do. We don't try to impose a dominant philosophy or ideology the way most organizations do. We have very simple rules. 
uh, empower people with intellectual disabilities, train them to compete, showcase their gifts, and celebrate their achievements. After that, the rest is up to you, and you are the only person, you, the mom in central Honduras, you, the dad in Afghanistan, you, uh, the local business owner in uh, in a big city in India, you, uh, the political, uh, the mayor in China, you are the only person who can affect that change. Not Tim Shriver, uh, not the CEO in his or her uh, corner office, not the head of state, but you, the citizen engaged, committed, uh, and determined to make a difference. So um, I think that uh, bottom-up uh, NGO-type philosophy that really trusts, doesn't just say they trust citizen actors, but really trust citizens, citizen actors to be the difference, people that take that seriously uh, can see similar kinds of results. Um, but it's a rare um, it's a rare gift to know that a that in the heart of almost every human being, as this is what we believe, is someone willing to change and willing to be an agent of change and willing to work for a more just and more tolerant and a more healthy future. Um, and to trust people that they can do that themselves is an extraordinary thing uh, to do and to watch what happens when you do it. So your organizational structure kind of reflects that in that you're, uh, in, in countries around the world, most of your uh, chapters or members, uh, I wouldn't know how you, you characterize them, yeah. uh, are run by local actors, is that That's correct? That's right. All, uh, we have 180 national programs. Uh, uh, or, or national and state programs, if you, if you add the United States programs. They are separately incorporated. They're led by boards of directors that are chosen within those national boundaries. If they have money, many of them have no money, zero budgets, but the ones that have budgets hire their own staff, set their own strategic goals within the, a broader strategic framework of, of what the Special Olympics mission and movement are about. And they set off to serve and change their own communities and cultures and the families within their borders. So uh, they feel, I think, very much a part of something bigger than themselves. If you're in Pakistan or Germany or uh, Italy or Egypt uh, and you're involved in Special Olympics, I think there is a sense in which you know that though you serve your village, your, your town, your country, your state, uh, you are also part of a larger movement. But... Uh, they have enormous uh, latitude to make the kinds of decisions necessary to make a difference in their country. Our only challenge to them, as I said before, is to uh, retain their, uh, the power of the commitment to undo the injustice that exists for this population and in so doing to free people, uh, to see the full humanity of every citizen. And once we tell them that, then they go for it and they do amazing things. So. That being said, you, as the head of an organization, or at least chairman and CEO of an organization running in that many countries, uh, you have to be very diplomatic in approaching um, each situation. Can you tell me, do you, do you consider yourself a diplomat in some respects? Well, I consider myself a citizen-level activist. Um, and my message to countries, if, to, to political entities, is very simple. Um, I don't, sometimes somebody will say, well, how do we compare as a country? How does Norway compare to Sweden? Or how does France compare to Germany? Or how does South Africa compare to Namibia? Or how does India compare to Pakistan? Or Japan to China? Or whatever. We don't compare. Uh, my answer is very simple. I don't know how you compare. What I know is that your country can do better. 
And I can say that anywhere in the world. I can say that in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I can say it in Wenzhou, China, and I can say it in Berlin, Germany, and I can say it in London, England, and I can say it anywhere. Your country, your community can do better. Um, and uh, all you need to do is trust uh, citizen-level actors to take on the challenge of playing sports, training and competing, opening the doors of schools and healthcare clinics and other entities to the vision of human dignity that these sporting competitions uh, create, and you will see change. You will see your own citizens, whether that citizen group is a thousand people in a village or a billion people in a country, you will see your own citizens respond in a positive way to the possibilities of, of greater dignity. So am I a diplomat? Um, I don't represent a country. I don't represent an economic interest. I don't represent a, a, a military interest. I don't represent a political uh, ideology other than human dignity. So uh, it's, uh, maybe it's a missionary work of a sort, but it's a mission that is, I think, as natural and as normal um, as, as the human heart, and therefore it's very much culturally safe in almost any place in the world. Are there advantages then to work as an NGO instead of as a governmental actor? Well, I think there's certainly advantages to having, uh, I mean, my interest in every country is primarily the interest of that country. It's not the interest of another country. So I have no, uh, there's no dialectic, if you will. The only dialectic, if I could use that expression, is the dialectic of change within the country. Not, there's no uh, counterbalancing weight against which I'm balancing the goal of helping folks in the Ukraine develop a strong Special Olympics Ukraine. I'm not worrying about whether Special Olympics Russia will be upset with me or Special Olympics Georgia won't like it. Uh, I don't have any such agenda. Um, and, and so uh, there are advantages to that. Now, there are disadvantages in the sense in which that we are not political. We don't uh, investigate you know, crimes uh, against people with intellectual disabilities. We don't take partisan points of view on uh, Medicaid, whether Medicaid should be funded in this country uh, uh, on, for people with intellectual disabilities at certain levels or not, where there are, where there are significant differences politically um, in this country. Um, so there are many issues around which uh, our population has concerns where we don't uh, necessarily have a voice. Uh, so it, sometimes it's uh, limiting to be a non-political actor. Uh, but other times it, it gives us a lot of flexibility to get things done that might otherwise be impossible. So you see yourself as non-political, but you're still engaged with the world community in a way that um, really is somewhat similar to other states. Do you see yourself on equal footing with states? or? In well, um, I think the whole idea of the state is changing. I mean, even if you look at, like, take, take the question of uh, American companies. Is General Motors an American company? Well, if you look in the political season right now, everybody would say, of course it is. But um, General Motors employs millions of people uh, or creates millions of jobs in many countries in the world. Many parts, many uh, manufacturing systems and so on are not uh, based in Detroit, uh, to state the obvious. Is uh, Samsung a Korean company? Yeah, except... There's a lot of people who own and love their Samsung products in this country and so on and so forth. So um, 
you know, there are still laws that govern the way in w- where co- companies are incorporated and so on and ways in which people pay taxes and sort of identities that tend to follow national boundaries. But the state as an entity, uh, the American economic interests in Korea or the American economic interests in China or India or other countries, it's an evolving story. Whose interests are you really representing? Uh, who is American? Who is Chinese? I mean, these are moving dynamics. In our case, um, we don't, you know, our, our, our nation state is a cross-boundary community of, at this moment, you know, four to seven million people, athletes, families, and volunteers. Uh, they think as one. They have an interest as a whole, but they are not limited uh, by national boundary or ethnicity or religion or cultural uh, background. And so to some extent, I suppose if I were a nation or if I were a state, it would be the the loosely federated community of citizen-level actors that call themselves uh, Special Olympics athletes, families, and volunteers. But we don't act very much like a state, and uh, and maybe that's a good thing. So uh, I guess uh, I, I want to finish up here with just uh, one last question, fairly broad, but what do you see as coming in the future with the Special Olympics, other than obviously the next games in 2013? Well, uh, look, we do 52,000 events a year at the community level. We have 4 million athletes. There are 200 plus million people with an intellectual disability in the world. Most people are shocked by that number. Uh, it's the largest disability group in the world. It's the most hidden, the most marginalized, the most overlooked, uh, the most neglected, politically, socially, and economically. So uh, in many ways, our movement, which is over 40 years old, is still in its infancy. Um, The civil rights, if you will, or the human rights movement for people with intellectual disabilities is just beginning. I like to think that we are the human side of human rights. Most human rights organizations do the rights work. We do the human work. Uh, I think in the future, the biggest issue facing the world is how do we get along despite our differences, and I believe our athletes are amongst the best teachers of how to get along despite differences that the world has ever seen. And so I anticipate in the future a huge explosion of understanding and awareness around the gifts of people with intellectual disabilities. We think now about multiple intelligences. We think about many different ways of being smart. I think we're going to discover in the next 50 years that many people who we thought were stupid or, or uh, idiots or retards actually carry enormous gifts, enormous intelligences that are, can be powerful uh, peace building, uh, compassion building, cooperation building, tolerance building tools for the future. And I don't think there's a bigger and more important mission than that. So I, I'm very bullish on the future of our athletes and their movement. and. Um, look forward to watching what they come up with as we uh, as we try to change the world. Well, Special Olympics Chairman and CEO Tim Shriver, thanks so much for being on the PolicyCast today. My pleasure. You've been listening to PolicyCast, a production of Harvard Kennedy School. More information can be found at hkspolicycast.org.